Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone line are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here as with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. Are you feeling nostalgic today? I'm feeling nostalgic today, Steve. We're going to go back in time. We're going to look at some of the great things that happened throughout 2023 with an emphasis on home assistant automation. Cool things for your house. How much better does it get? I don't know. For me, it gets me excited. It's one of those uh, hobbies that I have that just gets more and more expensive as uh, (laughs) You'll probably notice as we talk about it later. So as you think, before we dig back into 2023, looking forward to 2024, what are some of the things that you're excited about to get accomplished? Or where would you like to be when we get to the end of 2024 with home automation? Hmm. Well, I'm kind of interested to see where your experiment with these five-inch tablets uh, or screens go. I'm I'm very interested in that. You're, you're piloting that for me. Um, in addition, I've, I've kind of keeping my pulse on the M5 stack stuff. I've ordered a few of those. These are the little satellite speaker um, microphone combos that are used for talking to home assistants. So we'll see how that goes. I, I don't have high hopes, but they were cheap. And, you know, if they are sort of functional, even half as good as they demo, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to deploying those. So 2023 was an interesting year for all of us, I think, Uh, coming out of the pandemic and just generally trying to get life back into some sort of normal swing. And as part of that, a lot of us went through, I suppose, little buying spurts, you know, things that we were motivated to touch up around the house. And when I was reflecting upon what was happening in 2023, uh, I thought it would be interesting to go back and look at some of the purchases that we made with relation to home automation um, and kind of talk about it because a lot of times we will throw out, hey, I bought this thing or we'll get a person that will ask for a suggestion, but we don't really close the feedback loop. So I thought what we would do is just start off by talking about a little bit about some of the stuff we bought and then we'll we'll end up moving into, let's say, a mini review of those. What does that sound like to you? Yeah, I love it. So uh, Noah and I were comparing notes, and it turns out that I was the bigger shopper this year. Uh, <laughs> so either uh, either Santa brought Noah everything, or uh, I don't know, I guess I just had a bigger hole in my pocket. So for me, uh, it's going to sound a little weird. I broke this down into three categories, Zigbee, Wi-Fi, and Z-Wave, in terms of the things that, that I bought for home automation. Now, long listeners might be a little bit curious as to why I have Zigbee stuff on the list. And we'll probably talk a little bit about this in in the overall kind of review. But I started off the year buying a Sonoff Zigbee 3.0 stick. And this was my, I believe it's my sixth or seventh controller that I have tried for for the Zigbee stuff. Uh, Specifically, I went with the Sonoff because it got 
good reviews. It was an updated version of the protocol. And ultimately, just like Shelly, I have had really good experiences with Sonoff stuff. Um, <clears throat> and I mean, in terms of how well it functions, it, it does what it advertises. I still have issues with Zigbee Network and all of these things we're going to have a link for in the show notes. Most of the things I link directly to Amazon because most people, myself included, probably don't want to go and have an account for all of the different manufacturers that even though you can buy directly for them. So next on the list, I ended up getting a Sonoff S40 Lite Zigbee Smart Plug. Uh, part of the reason for this was they help you extend the range of your Zigbee network acting as a router for anything remote. And this was specifically bought for my chicken coop because when I was looking around for a controller for the chicken coop door, the best thing that I could come up with from a DIY perspective was a, um, a eco-worthy linear actuator combined with a Zigbee two-channel smart relay system. And I wanted to make sure that the smart relay uh, had enough range to get back to the house. So I'm using this S40 Zigbee plug as a... Almost like a repeater. Extender. Yeah, exactly. Right? So it's an extent... It's a, it's a range extender to make sure that the Zigbee network gets out to the chicken coop. And from that regard... I have zero complaints about this. It was cheap enough and it just sits there and does exactly what it's supposed to do. Um, and I mentioned the, the two channel smart so for people that don't know, an actuator is an arm that will open or close depending on whether the positive charge is sent down the left wire or the right wire. So what the relay does is it, it basically acts as a traffic control. And when you, have the button set one way, it sends the power down the left. And when you have it set the other way, it sends the power down the right. And the actuator opens or closes depending on which wire the, the power goes down. And as part of this, uh, we've ended up getting a couple more Acara door sensors and a, a temperature sensor as well. I mean, there's not much to write home about about either one of these things. They were purchased because some of them have died and they're just cheap. And so you kind of expect when you spend 10 or $15 on a sensor that maybe they'll kick off sometime in the future. So some of these were just replacements. Um, <clears throat> so moving down the list to Wi-Fi, I bought significantly more Wi-Fi based things. I have been considering the idea of how do you make home assistant more highly available and ultimately what I came down on is even though I really like Z-Wave and I really hate Zigbee, the only real answer to this currently without getting really complicated is to use Wi-Fi devices because both Zigbee and Z-Wave require you to have a controller plugged in to a box, right? So currently the way Home Assistant works is it expects you to have a USB stick of either one or both of those protocols plugged into it, and then it it interacts with the network that way. Now, there are some exceptions out there in terms of getting a hub that works over Wi-Fi. So I had a, a Zigbee one that essentially, it was a Zigbee relay that ended up having a Wi-Fi component so that 
it would talk back over MQTT. So it handled all of the Zigbee stuff and then relayed all of the information over MQTT. Um, I ended up having range issues and other problems with that. But on the whole, the issue with both of these is that you can't have a highly available setup because if either the USB stick dies or if you go with a hub like the SmartThings hub, that is your single point of failure. So it doesn't matter what you do, you can't fail over the Home Assistant without some sort of physical interaction. Whereas with the Wi-Fi, if you've got multiple access points and um, a steady connection from your Home Assistant to the Wi-Fi devices, they will fail over to whichever Home Assistant happens to be in control at that time. So with that in mind, um, I have purchased this thing called the G-Home uh, W02 Smart Outlets. These are things that go directly in the wall. They replace the socket in the wall. Wasn't a real big fan of those. We'll get into that a little bit. Um, they work. They're able to be flashed. I was able to get rid of the original firmware. I probably wouldn't do this again. What I would do really? is I... No, I don't think so. Um, part of the reason is the heat dispersion is not particularly good. So I've had a few, more than a few of these drop off the network. Um, what I mean by that is the outlet itself literally dies. And... Do you get no power even though there's no smarts that are working? So something ends up frying in these devices. And I think I have replaced five since I've moved in three years ago. Yeesh. So, so do you have like a percentage of failure rate? It's small because I redid my entire house with these before I was smart and got whole house power monitoring. That, okay. that, was, a, that was a thing that I wish I had have thought of before because largely... I didn't buy these for the ability to automate all of the plugs in the house, but rather to find all of the energy vampires. And it served its purpose, but it was an expensive way to go relative to the fact that they're dropping off now. They seem to be. I've tried to find a manufacturer or something to contact, but but like you find on reviews online, you can buy the products, but you just can't seem to get in contact with these people. Okay. So... With that in mind, uh, I have bought a ton of Shelly stuff this year. So between the Shelly Plus One, the Shelly Plus One PM, which is the power monitoring, and then I got, they have this new one now. It's called a Shelly Plus One Mini. Uh, they are significantly smaller, but they only handle eight amps. So it's for more like sticking behind a light switch or something like that, as opposed to the the Shelly Ones, which can handle up to 16 amps, give or take. Uh, Really like the Shelly stuff. This this was the year that I rediscovered the the Shelly firmware, I suppose. Part of it was out of laziness. I needed something to work. I knew that they had <laughs> a, a home assistant integration in the chicken coop, and I was just throwing this together to get the chickens out of my house. Side note, they lived in my house for several months. My, my wife just showed up one day. She's like, I bought chickens. I'm like, it's still cold. I can't even dig in the ground to actually start building the chicken coop yet. And she's just like, eh, you'll figure it out. Uh, so I had chickens living in my house for a long time. So getting them out of the house was a priority at some point. And uh, so I didn't bother flashing the Shelleys. I just put them in and turns out I really like the firmware. Not not to mention the first class experience they are in Home Assistant. Um, do you have any experience with the Shelleys? I have a little bit. So far what I've seen is they're one of the most professional products that are tailored to do-it-yourself or open source 
things. Uh, one of the things, and I'll get into this in a little bit more detail in a bit here, but I find a, a bit of a struggle between it seems either proprietary or things that work within their own little ecosystem and they work really well when you try to make them play with other friends, then they're less playful. Shelly seems like the sweet spot because it is both professional, open, allows you to do all the things, and yet I don't feel like I'm taking a performance hit to do so. Yeah, and you know, I just ended up uh, buying something else this year called the Shelly Plus add-on. Now, this was a thing that I never thought that I would buy to begin with, and essentially what it does is it clips onto a Shelly Plus device, any one of them. And it essentially just clips in and gives you additional screw terminals for supported sensors that you might plug in. Like I have a uh, DS18B20, just rolls off the tongue. But these are a temperature sensor that is on a long, a long cable and they're waterproof. So I actually drop that in the chicken coop water to make sure that they the water doesn't freeze over. And so the reason why I would have never thought to buy this is because like what, I got to spend an extra $14 just to plug on an additional sensor when I could spend $3 on an ESP and just wire the sensor in myself. But turns out that this was going outside in kind of harsh conditions and the Shelleys are rated for something like minus 25 Celsius. Um, and so tucked up under the chicken coop, that was something I felt was mission critical enough that I was going to take somebody's word at the fact that this was going to last as opposed to the chicken water froze over and I broke my pump because my homemade thing just couldn't stand the South Dakota cold. Okay. Yeah. So on top of that, um, I purchased some LED waterproof rope lights that I threw up in my attic. They work fine. No complaints there. They are not smart themselves. I tossed them on a, a smart plug and just it's been working exactly as it is expected. Although the strings that I have been really happy with are the WS2811 LED strings. So these are ones we use for the Christmas tree, but they're individual addressable LEDs. And I've been quite happy with the performance and how they look and the color. Uh, and honestly, I hooked them up to a Raspberry Pi with a power supply and haven't really looked back. And so if, if you're looking for that sort of stuff, I'd say these this type of LED is a really good way to go. It works well. There are, this particular model is well supported in various libraries from Python to Arduino and so on, which makes them very flexible for the stuff that you're gonna do. And I have a couple of stuff, uh, a couple of things that I'm, I'm trying out right at the end of the year that I don't have a good review for really yet. I, I bought a millimeter wave sensor from, Seed Studio. Yeah, you And do. yeah, the kitchen one works flawlessly. We really like it to the point where uh, one time, the one time it didn't work because I was rebooting Home Assistant, my wife is like, are you doing something with Home Assistant? Because the light didn't come on, <laughs> which, you know, that's the full spousal approval factor right there is like we've come to rely on it so much that it just, it does its job. It stays out of the way and it's, it never turns the light off on her and uh that's what's really important but the jury's out on that because i bought a couple more and the tweaking is challenging let's say because they're kind of complicated devices 
And uh, finally, rounding out the Wi-Fi section, I ended up buying some Echo smart speakers from M5 Stack. So these are little $13 speakers that uh, have a microphone built into them, and they're meant specifically to work with Home Assistant for me. So Home Assistant worked with M5 Stack to have these little satellites around so as part of the year of the voice. And so I'm waiting for them to show up. They... They showed up on the 29th of December in Illinois somewhere, and then the tracking stopped. So I'm waiting with bated breath to get a hold of these. Yeah, 100%. Is that anything that interests you, Noah, the uh, smart speaker thing? The I, I'm less drawn to the smart speaker just from the standpoint that I'm so happy with Volumio. Um, how does the smart speaker get the audio to and from itself? So it is constantly streaming, or let me rephrase that. It has the ability to constantly stream. They added a wake word recently, and these little things essentially are constantly streaming audio back to Home Assistant okay. in terms of um, what they should be responding to. And it, there's some two-way uh, communication. Usually it's just in the form of a beep, but I've seen... YouTube videos and stuff like that of people actually responding, like having it respond with voice and all of these kind of fun things, making uh, somebody made a Jarvis and, and somebody else decided that it would be a really good idea to have each one of these individual speakers respond to a different keyword so that you didn't accidentally trigger one that was across the room. And they, they did that by using French fruit names because it's something that you wouldn't accidentally say normally. Mm -hmm. So there's what I, I think is really interesting is each one of these little devices can be triggered with their own wake word. And that I think is kind of interesting. 100%. I think these are, if I'm not mistaken, these M5s are the hardware that is going to power the next generation of voice technology for home assistants. So I definitely have my eye on this stuff. I just... I'm very much a button person to control stuff. And for music stuff, again, I, I've got something I, I really like, so I'm, I'm less drawn to it, um, but interested in following it, if that makes sense. It does. I, from For us, I want the house to react to us, largely speaking. Uh, but there's a couple of times where we have situations that require some sort of manual interaction. So I'll give you a, a for instance, and I'm kind of stealing my own thunder in the automation section, but when, when one of the automations fires, it turns the lights purple on the stairs, which is a color that they never go. And it stays that way until you reset them on purpose because this is something that's noteworthy. It happens to be the freezer got left open. And so everybody needs to know the freezer's open so we don't lose the food. Yeah. Right, but that to reset that requires manual intervention. Sometimes you don't have your phone on you or you don't want to go to a computer or whatever. So it'd be really nice for you to be able to bark at the speaker, hey, turn this light off, you know, kind of acknowledge the alert. So yeah, that's that's it. And I, for the Z-Wave stuff, I've just got a really short list. Um, I've, as an effort to get rid of Zigbee throughout my network, I started to buy ring content sensor, contact sensors of all things because... I got a two pack for like $20 at, on Black Friday. So I got, I ended up getting four Z Wave contact sensors uh, for like 40 bucks. And so I'm slowly 
marching Z way, Zigbee out of my network. Let me ask you something. As you kind of go through between Wi-Fi-based devices and, and Zigbee and Z-Wave, is there any concern on your part that you're going to have to provide updates to these devices for the rest of your life? Like, if it's some sort of device that's talking on a hardware level and it's talking over its own proprietary protocol, whatever that is, whether it's Zigbee or Z-Wave, at the end of the day, it's not on the network. So it can talk back and forth. Maybe it gets out of date. Maybe it doesn't. As long as the controller's good, you know, you're up to date. Now, every one of these light bulbs, every light switch, all of these things are going to have to stay up to date. And to a degree, there's an advantage because Home Assistant is going to send the update down. But at the end of the day, that's only going to last so long, too. You know, 10 years from now, are they still going to be pushing updates? Who knows? Does that bother you? Is that concern for you at all? I have seen really good support through Shelly if we're talking about the Wi-Fi stuff. You're right about the Zigbee stuff. Like, they don't need to be updated because they will just... They'll just run. I do run the updates when when no, Home Assistant notifies me, but at the end of the day, they're on their own little network, and I'm not really concerned about the the Z Wave side of things. Like, they'll probably run until they die. I think a hardware failure is the most likely thing to get a Z Wave device uh, booted. So now we get to the part of the show where we're going to talk about our experiences with hardware in 2023. So I've broken it down into wins, losses, and mixed. So wins and losses, that's kind of self-explanatory, what we like, what we didn't like. Did we pull something out of production, that sort of stuff. Mixed is, you know, it works, but maybe there are some flaws or didn't quite meet the spousal approval factor, but it's still kind of running because we didn't have anything better. So I thought I'd kick this over at Noah to let him talk about some of the challenges and or successes he's had in home automation in 2023. Yeah. So I, you know, it's interesting. I've watched automation from a very early time, right back from the X, uh, X11 days and, and, and or X11, X10 days and kind of watched it kind of come to fruition to whereas today open source on one branch is doing fantastic and taking off and literally becoming the standard and the de facto standard of automation at the same time. Cloud products have never been more prevalent. And so you can walk into just any Best Buy and they have an entire section where you just take the device home, add the Mac address in and all of a sudden Bob's your uncle, you're automated. So that's kind of the world that we're that we're living in. I went through an interesting progression because I started with X10, which was bad. It was like a glorified science project. If you followed my journey, and I've talked about it on the show before, eventually went to Lutron Radio Raw, which was flawless. I had no complaints. It's excellent. It does everything exactly the way I expected to. And the most important thing was it got my wife on board because for the first time she looked at something and went, that's reliable. I like that. I want to use that. And I've been reluctant to step back off of the, the, the reliability boat as it were. So at some point this year, I made the transition from home assistant, just kind of running kind of out on the periphery. And it just kind of worked with everything that I already had to becoming the thing, the central source of truth. And I, and as part of that, I migrated from the pie over to, a virtualized environment and brought all of that in. To me, the biggest wins of that process were one, the integration of my uh, access door camera to home assistant. What that allowed. So the, 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 you're going to like this, Steve, the bet that I made with my wife was if you allow me to put home assistant into production, 
and spend a bunch of money to get all the things up to date. If you allow me to do that, this will become the last thing I will ask you to download as it relates to our home. And admittedly, like early on, she was like, I don't buy that. You tell me that once every three months and then there's something new. <laughs> you know, it's like, it was like first it was, so, so anyways, and she goes through the list of technology that has evolved over time. I'm like, no, but really, this is the one thing. If you do this one, then everything that we tie into our house will be in this one app. So that was the promise. And we started, and for the most part, it started out where she could control the lights and stuff, which was better than the Lutron app. So, okay, we're at a, we're at a, we're not at a win. We're not at a loss. We're just at a even ground. But then Steve, then it got to where I could integrate other stuff that we could integrate into the older apps. Things like the weather, things like our camera system, things like the doorbell. And, and, and as it sits today, she's got a page or a, a dashboard on home assistant where it shows the front door. If somebody pushes a little button, she can have an interaction with that person. Say, Hey, how are you? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, great. Awesome. Come on in. And then she can hit a button and it sends a message to the door controller and unlocks the, unlocks the front door. So even, so it's like when the, Furnace guy comes to repair and neither one of us are home, but somebody's standing out there and hits a button. She can go, oh, okay, yeah, I'm on my way home. Let me let you in. Hits the button. Okay, doors open. Walk on in. That was a huge win. So making the Hasio the new source of truth, uh, the integration of the front door camera allowed that to land well with the spousal factor. Then, then we get to grid cards. Steve, have you played with grid cards in Home Assistant? I have not. Oh my gosh. It changed my life and then some so grid cards are effectively a way to organize a bunch of entities into a small space well, no why would you want to organize a bunch of entities into a small space because it allows you to put them onto smaller displays so that you can replicate what would be an out-of-the-box appliance like experience what am i talking about so i had this idea what after i did my thermostats and i did the honeywell redlink system they have little five inch keypads that are all over the house. And so my my home is powered by a essentially a boiler system, boils water, and then there's a pump, and the pump pumps the water to a manifold. The manifold then releases it to all of the areas in the house. And so in the basement, there's uh, piping that's all over the floor, and so the floor itself gets warm. Upstairs, it's a mix between radiators that are on the wall and in-floor heat that's, in, that's, again, that's pipes buried inside of the floor, as well as like towel warmers and all sorts of other things that are tied into the system. So in order for that system to work properly, there's a bunch of different zones. So it allows like the kids in the bedroom, if they turn on, if a kid in one bedroom calls for 72, but my wife and I want it to six, set at 68, the controller downstairs, a Honeywell controller will do an evaluation and say, okay, zone one is calling for heat. Zone two doesn't want heat. And so on the manifold, it will open up a zone two and allow heat to flow to zone two, but we'll keep zone one shut off until it's hits its threshold. Now that maybe drops below 68 degrees. It'll say, okay, now zone one has hit its threshold. It's also calling for heat. It'll open up the zone back, back to there. So all of that is, is a semi-complicated heating and cooling system, but it allows for incredible granularity within the home. But the, the idea that I took away from that is, well, this is a really great way to interface with our heating and cooling system. Wouldn't it be great if I could do in the entire home assistant with this? And so I started by purchasing some five-inch touchscreens. And we'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.snowshow.com. It's the Elcro Raspberry Pi touchscreen. And essentially what it is is a little five-inch touchscreen low-resolution monitor. That's all it is. It's a little component. And I started to build those into the wall as kind of a control point for home assistant. Well, that then led to... The normal dash, uh, dashboards don't really work all that well when you have a low-resolution uh, thing. But when you use grid cards, then you can have multiple entities all stacked up, and they show up as almost like little buttons or little cards 
grid cards, hence the name. <laughs> and you can pack in a ton of those, and then it scrolls. And it replicates almost identically the functionality of these other appliance-based touchscreen devices that control whatever, but you're doing it with Home Assistant. Uh, and and, and so, so the combination of those two things, I think, really brought it home for me. As far as things that did not go so well. So one of the things, and we, we, we touched about this, we touched on this in an earlier episode and kind of touched on it today. But one of the things that I ran into problems with is that oftentimes what I'll find is when you have proprietary systems, so the most notable example I can think of is Avaya. Avaya makes IP phones. And if you buy an Avaya phone system, when you touch a button to call the next extension or place a page or whatever it is, it happens instantaneously. It's like that button, its only function in life is to do that thing. When I started moving over to SIP systems, it's a more open standard. So there's more phones that you can use. There's more servers you can use. There's more configuration options. You're not tight. All the great things that we like about open standards, fantastic, and open source, fantastic. But no question about it, when you hit the little page function, now it's processing this phone functionality and it's calling an extension, which then doesn't answer. And so the end result to the user is it seems like a less cohesive experience. When I started looking at automation, I found a lot of the same shortcomings to where if in the proprietary system with the Lutron system, for example, on the lights, when I press a button, everything happens absolutely instantaneously. You push a button and everything happens. As I moved over to having Home Assistant become the central point, it works and it works 100% of the time, but you can definitely tell it's a computer. It no longer feels like, so, for example, Steve and I were talking before the show, all the quote-unquote three-way switches in my house are not three-way switches. There's one switch that is controlling the load. The other switch at the opposite end of the three-way switch is really just a remote switch that sends a message to the controller that then turns the light on. But if you walked into the hallway and pressed that button, you wouldn't know that. It feels like it's a local switch. With the migration to Home Assistant being the center, that is no longer the case. When I push a button, I can absolutely... Like, it's probably, I would say three to five seconds from the time that I push the button to the time that the lights come on, as opposed to you push the button and the lights are coming on as I'm letting go of the button. I mean, that's the difference in, in speed. So there's, there's decidedly a performance hit. Now, Steve, it was interesting before the show, we were kind of talking about this and you were saying, maybe I should do this a slightly different way. So for example, the way that I had it set up before was you push the button on the switch and it sends a message to the light and the light turns on. So it was a very slow or it was a very direct linear path. Now it's you push the button, the button lights up, home assistant watches for the button to light up, triggers an automation. The automation then sends a signal to the API to say, turn on this light load. The API then communicates with the Lutron controller. The Lutron controller then sends a message to the actual switch and then the light comes on. There's a better way to do that, isn't there? Well, the theory here is that most things are happening in some sort of serial process, right? This happens, then I wait for a response to get an acknowledgement that it happened, then I go on to the next thing, and that happens all the way down. If you're waiting for that check, and say you've got five things to turn on, now you've just, you know, quintupled the number, the amount of time that it takes to process that. Whereas if you set up your automation, for example, in Node-RED, where you have the output of one node pointing at five things, 
you'll have a faster response than having your output of a node point at the first light and then to the second light and then to the third light and the fourth light. So instead of running them in serial, you go back to running everything in parallel and you should see a speed up of things because unless you've got congestion on your, your protocol network, whatever that happens to be, you're going to have a faster response by sending the signal from the node to 40 things at the same time as opposed to one after the other. Okay, so there might be some advantage in and maybe just structuring this slightly different. In any event, it's still overall, on the whole, still feels like a massive win to me. Um, I guess my only thing is, I I do hope that over time, some of the more open sourcey stuff becomes, or, or maybe builds on some of the robustness of standardized protocols so that devices know how to communicate with each other. And eventually we can get to a place where instead of one thing relying on another thing, relying on another thing, relying on another thing, eventually it would get to the point where Home Assistant could just in some ways directly talk to some of these things. I don't know, maybe I'm dreaming in the clouds there. But until then, I'm going to have to take a, a serious look at, at Node-RED and see if even in a trial situation to say, hey, does that at least address some of the concerns? And if that's just a different way to go, well, I was just trading one open source project for another. Yeah, and one of the, one of the advantages of something like Shelly, and again, I'm not really pitching Shelly specifically, but when you've got Home Assistant, it's talking directly to the API on the device. So it's not going through another intermediary like you're talking about, which means that you can fire off as many signals as, as those devices can handle. So there are integrations out there where it is a direct connection to a thing instead of having an inter intermediary. Um, not only that, there are ways to have different ecosystems talk to themselves. So like ESP Home and Shelly both have the way to program to actually produce a program on the device itself with scenes and automations just on the device itself, irrespective of what's happening in Home Assistant. So there are ways around it. It just depends on what way you want to skin the cat. 100%. If you have thoughts for me, I'd be interested to write in live at asknoahshow.com. So Steve, I understand you also had some wins, some losses, and some draws. Tell me about them. Yeah, so I actually enlisted my wife's help on this because oftentimes when you're sitting down to reevaluate things, there are things that you didn't think about or you know that don't bother you that are absolutely a problem for other people around the house. And so I guess I'll start with the mixed. So um, some of the mixed things which really surprised me we bought an access camera and we put it out in the chicken coop and it's a PTZ one. So you can, you can pan tilt and zoom it. And she, she does this for the home, uh, for the chickens to see where they're at and make sure they're all inside before you close them up and stuff like that. What I didn't realize was she was really annoyed at the fact that she couldn't actually turn the camera from home assistant. And part of this is a failing of myself, not understanding what the best way to do this. So if anybody else has this situation where your camera doesn't have controls exposed in Home Assistant, there might be a better way. It turns out when she exposed this to me, like, hey, this is a problem, I actually went digging and found, well, the access integration works fine and the feed comes in and you can, you know, look at the camera and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't expose the, the PTZ functionality. However, in prepping for the show, 
multiple times I heard Noah talk about something called OnVIF. And yeah. turns out that that protocol and integration exposes the PTZ functionality in Home Assistant for you. And so simply putting a couple of buttons in Home Assistant with the OnVIF to, OnVIF to turn the camera or do whatever she wants to do, I waved that away. So there's, you know, there's often a better way. And sometimes you don't realize it until someone has hit, like, taking you aside. And sometimes, like, my wife is so easygoing with some of this stuff that she just lives with things. So another thing was we've got these LED mood lightings that run around the crown molding in one of the rooms. And one of the, one of the automations is when we push a button, it lowers the, the brightness of the room gradually until they turn off. Now, with these particular lights, if you lower the, the brightness too low, the lights will flash at you to tell you that they're, you know, you can't go down any lower. Like if you pick up the physical remote and just keep clicking, eventually it'll flash at you to say, hey, I'm already at the lowest brightness. What I didn't realize was happening was because I'm long from, gone from the room before they're off. And so usually my wife is sitting there when the lights go off and she's like, when I was asking her, well, what, what did you think was kind of a win or a loss for this. She's like, I really hate it that the lights flash before they go off. It's super annoying. And <laughs> I didn't know this was a problem. And I ended up through playing around. I didn't know that they flashed when you turn them all the way down. So the solution was just count how many the maximum down is and stop one before that. So, you know, sometimes it's as simple as just making a tiny tweak to have your to turn a mixed into a win because some of those things like the camera, she's really happy to look at her chickens, but I didn't have any idea that there was this kind of annoyance. Um, I mentioned the, the Sonoff Zigbee 3.0 controller. I put this in the mix category because it's definitely way better than any of the previous sticks that I've had. It does not disappear when I reboot home assistant. It doesn't really disappear when I reboot the host because it's on a VM, but I ended up having to migrate from ZHA to Zigbee to MQTT. And this caused a massive amount of churn. I had to unpair everything and repair everything and then redo the automations because the naming conventions change between these two things. And on top of that, uh, there's an issue where Zigbee to MQTT does not officially support this device. So I'm running an un unsupported controller and who knows how long that's going to last for me. So I've already started phasing out the Zigbee stuff as much as I can. It has stabilized somewhat. I've still had a couple of meltdowns where things just drop off the network. Um, and as I've discussed in previous episodes, I've done the standard troubleshooting. I moved the Zigbee controller physically. I moved the channel it was on. I moved the Wi-Fi channel to make sure they were like as far apart as possible. You know, I've done all of these sorts of things, not to mention I have a router in literally every room. I, tr <laughs> I tried everything to make Zigbee work properly for me. So the Sonoff Zigbee controller gets a, a tepid endorsement from me because it's far better than what I had, but it didn't really, uh, it, it gave me another set of challenges. Speaking of challenges, we'll talk a little bit about some of the losses I, I had. Um, so Zigbee in general, right? I'm not going to beat this too much more, but 
but as I've been having more and more of the Zigbee stuff behave erratically or start to die. And this is kind of disappointing. I mean, they're cheap, but I had expected to get more out of them because most of them are less than two years old. Um, on that note, I've been a little sad with the cloud free branded smart plugs. So not just myself, but, um, friend of the show, Chris DeLuca has also been having some trouble with them. I bought several of them when I moved into this house uh, about two and a half years ago, these plugs are, and all of my cloud free plugs, except one have died. Whereas I have a half a dozen or more of these Tekken branded smart plugs from 2017 and they just keep on chucking. So not really sure what's going on there. I don't know if it's a bad batch. Um, I like the guys at cloud free. I still buy from them, but that was a loss for me. Um, and tie that in with, you know, e-waste related stuff. I, I bought this plastic sprinkler timer. And the idea is that it connects between your faucet, like your outside faucet and your sprinkler. And you can toggle it on and off so that the sprinkler comes on on a timer or whatever. That It was really flimsily made at the heads only. Like the rest of the body felt super solid like, and it was waterproof and seemed to do all the things, but a little, like, I suppose it wasn't little, but somebody yanked on the hose, like a kid tripped over it or something, and it snapped off from the faucet and I couldn't Ooh. repair it. I, tr I tried to glue it. I tried, I tried to 3D print a replacement for it. And ultimately this, this entire device, which was working was now junk because I couldn't actually keep it attached to the faucet. So that was a loss for me. Um, but you know what? On a high note, I, I'll come back to the Shelleys. I've been very happy with the Shelly warranty service. So I've I've had I have a couple of devices that they're they're still working. They're they're doing their thing, but they were uh, becoming intermittently unavailable, which wasn't that big of a deal because I don't go and flick the lights on and off in the chicken coop all that often. But every once in a while, they they would just report unavailable in Home Assistant. But if you pulled up the web page to the Shelly device, they worked every time. So I don't really know what was going on, but I contacted the support um, and they replaced them for free. They asked for a couple screenshots and some logs and the thing was completely painless. And I ended up I ended up with an upgrade because the Shelly 1 PMs are no longer for. Well, they just decided to upgrade me to the Shelly 1 Pluses. And so I got some upgrades there and been very happy with them. And speaking of other good support stories, I think it's really important to call out when you have good experiences, because a lot of times we we complain about this place or that place, but we don't really talk about where I, you had some good, good experiences. So I had a couple of sellers on Amazon this year that that were fantastic. Um, so there's a company called Yantech or a seller, I should say, on Amazon that I bought these those WS. 2811 LEDs. One of them half failed. So half of the string failed. And I don't even know if it was half of the string or just one, but it caused the downstring string lights to die. And so I just asked them, like, I, I sent them some questions. They asked for a picture. And within two days, I had a new box to put on my Christmas tree. I was, I was really floored because this is during the Christmas season. Like this happened I want to say the 23rd of December or something like that. And the, the next time that the shipment, the shippers were active in my area, I had a box from them. I was very happy. Like that was 
really impressive. And on a similar note, I had bought a, a, a pump for the rain barrels for automating my sprinklers out of the rain barrels. And there was, I, I didn't even contact the seller. I left a review of like four stars because it just didn't have enough oomph for me that it, it didn't have the suction power to pull up the hill like I needed it to. So I just, you know, I left it at four stars. It was like, seemed to do fine when everything was on the level or when it was below the level of the, the rain barrel. But when it was above the level of the rain barrel, it just didn't produce enough pressure for me. And I returned the pump just as, you know, whatever. The, the seller contacted me off of that, gave me an upgraded version of the model for $20. And I don't mean $20 additional. I got the refund for the original pump and they just sold me like a $120 pump for $20. Um, and I, that was amazing to me. And then not only that, they followed up in an email multiple times, checking in on me throughout the fall to make sure that the pump was still doing uh, what I expected it to do. So, you know, I'd, I like to kind of put it out there. We've had some really good there are some really good customer service people out there and they should be recognized for that. Said, and we'll have links for all of those in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. So if you have questions or if you want to check out any of those Amazon sellers, make sure to check out the show notes and we'll have links for you there. So Steve, one of the things that I'm really excited about is at Layton, they are looking to do automation. And so as of last week, we, the, myself and another the guy that Moonlight's doing IT out there, put together a proposal to say, hey, we want to buy a, a small, gently used server. We want to virtualize it. We want to install Home Assistant on it. And then we want to rip out all of the light switches out of all of the studios and all of the outboard lights that are outside the station and replace them all with devices that can be remotely controlled with home assistant. So it's my first foray into use. Well, it's actually my second because we did a, we did a church with home assistant as well, but it's my second foray into using home assistant for commercial automation, which I think holds an additional challenge maybe than just automating the home, huh? It'll be interesting to see how well it holds up. It's one thing to be dealing with the spousal approval factor. It's another thing to have a completely outside opinion on what it is that you're doing, right? Because your your spouse may be intolerant, but at the same time understands and may be a little more forgiving of the, of, as you work through some of the trials, knowing that it's going to get better, whereas someone else is going to be looking at this with a more critical eye. Right. When there isn't a revenue line attached to it. At the end of the day, I'm just, I'm, I'm mostly going just to not hit my wife's disappointment. Now, to be honest, the costs are somewhat higher, right? If like a fail, at automating for a business, they'll go to a different solution. Life will move on. If I fail at automating my house, my wife is going to pull the plug on my little spiel here, and then, and then I'm up a creek without a paddle. So I know I, we kind of touched on this at the at the beginning of the episode. Going into 2024, what are some of the exciting? I know you've got a bunch of parts that are sitting around your your uh, your office that you're looking to to put together in in for the next project, but. What are some of the things that you're excited on to, to work for towards 2024? I think mainly it's just around improving what we've already got. I'm I'm interested to see the millimeter wave stuff and how that that progresses. There, Inavelli has a light switch that they are putting the millimeter wave in, and so I probably will end up picking up one of those to see how well they do because 
every motion sensor that I have that's in a physical switch has been perfect as far as I can tell. Um, or at least so inconsequentially bad that, you know, no one notices. Right. And so I, I have high hopes for that sort of stuff. Aside from that, it's mostly just dialing it in. I hope uh, I kind of gave you the laundry list of things I bought this year. Hopefully it's not as big when we talk about this next year. What things are you looking at that you haven't purchased yet, but are kind of on your radar is like, you know, next time around, or if I had to do that over again, this is what I'd be looking at. I would focus a lot more on doing the power monitoring in the box with CT clamps and, and things of that nature. Honestly, if I had to do it over again, I might even rewire the house so that we've talked about the Shelly devices and how they can sit on the power rails. Mm -hmm. I might actually move the the whole functionality from the individual sockets, which is where they are now, mm -hmm. down into the to, into the box and have it rewire so that the mains go into the box with the rails that have the Shelly stuff and those go into the main box. You follow what I'm talking about? Yeah, a little bit. So, th so this, th we were talking, we we're talking a little bit about this before the show. So my dad purchased a new house and the, the way that that house is laid out is very interesting from the standpoint that it was built with automation in mind. The problem was it really wasn't built with future proof automation in mind. And so all of the light loads go into one central room. So there's typically your house, You'll have your feeds out from your panel, and then you have legs that run out to switch boxes, and then from the switch box, it'll run to the loader. If it's an older house, maybe it runs to the load first. Anyway, in this house, all 100% of all the runs never leave the electrical room. They go straight, they, they go into a big switching panel, and then from the switching panel out to the load itself. So all the light switches around the house are just remote controllers back. And the problem that that presents is the very proprietary, very explicit system that was in there that was when the house was built 15, 20 years ago, whatever, was I'm sure great at that time, but now you can't get updates for it, you can't get hardware for it, and worse yet, all of the controllers for those little remote lights are stored on volatile memory on the controller. And so if the controller loses power for any reason, it was supposed to, when it was new, have a backup battery that maintained the power for a little bit, but that is no longer functioning, or at least doesn't function well. And so he's had a couple of power outages to where then none of the light switches work until we go dump all the programming back in. So it's a, it's a real mess, Steve. And so what I'm hoping to do is rip all of those out and tie them into Shelly's. Kind of what you're talking about, just putting them on a DIN rail, tying all the Shelly's in and that gives us automation control over it. Then we can go back through the house and put whatever sort of control surfaces we want. That brings me to a question. This is something I could use the audience's help for. Live at AskNoahShow.com or join us in the Geek Lab, Geek Lab, colon, pound Geek Lab, colon, LinuxDelta.com. What do you recommend for a scene switch? That is to say, a switch that you can put into a wall, 120 volts, provide it, you push a button, and then that sends a command to home assistant, preferably five or more in each switch. I could take, I'd take more if I could get them like seven or nine, but if I could get a minimum of five different buttons that I could use to trigger scenes, that would be ideal. And in a perfect world, it wouldn't run through Wi-Fi. It would run through something like Zigbee or Z-Wave. Steve, what do you think? I'm interested to see what the audience would come up with. It's nice to crowdsource this, especially because we have some very active members in the community that uh, are very interested in these sort of things. 100%. Oh my goodness. In the chat room. So uh, two bit says a hammer. So <laughs> I don't think that's going to help the thing. That would create more problems than it would solve. I'm afraid. Um, but uh, so I'm, I'm excited. So I'm excited for that. I'm excited to take on that project and, and potentially do that with my dad. 
I'm also excited about expanding Volumio. So this is something I've started inside of my home, and I've said nothing but good things on the program because I really don't have anything bad to say about it. We've expanded into the commercial space, using it for background music inside of stores, using it for pre- and post-service music in churches, and it's been an absolute stellar hit everywhere that we've placed it. My next goal over the next few years, I think, is to break up. Right now, my house is all in one zone. And as my kids are getting older and wanting to take advantage of some of those things, I think that's likely what we're going to do is start to break off into individual zones. So we'll give that a shot and see how that works. Uh, Steve, anything else to add before we wrap up the discussion about home automation? I think it'd be great if we could get people that call in and let us know what they're thinking about. I'd like to see that dialogue happen more in 2024. Live, live at com or 1-855-450-6624. I think I can get the phone number right after five years of doing the show. was a busy year for home automation and 2024 is shaping up to be an even busier year. There's a lot of you out there that are doing this and many of you throughout the year have written in and asked Steve and I questions. So largely, I throw these off at Steve because he's doing a lot with Home Assistant and has been doing it uh, for a long time and meets a lot of the same budget constraints that a lot of you that are writing in are asking for. But Steve is ready to put me on the hot seat, aren't you, Steve? Yeah, I thought it'd be fun to go back and and see how much Noah has changed his opinion from doing the research, answering your questions, as well as listening to me blather on. I've wondered, what would Noah say today versus when he originally said it? Now, he didn't answer every question because Noah does like to step out of the way of questions as frequently as possible, it seems. But uh, I was able to get him on a few questions, so let's see how he handles it. Our first email, now again, these are ones that have come in that we've answered before, but Zach wrote in and said, I used Home Assistant for about three years ago, switched to a smart things hub to try to make things easier for the family. Now, Steve pointed out the Home Assistant mobile app, which I think is great, and I want to try it again. I'm curious what the best options for ZWI and ZigBee integration is. Previously, at a USB dongle, but the location is not great in my house where my knock is. Also, I read about some gateway devices which maybe I could place more central to the house and connect. Curious what your thoughts are. So in general, Steve, my I don't know that my opinion on this has changed a whole lot. I'm still of the opinion that local devices that are talking to other local devices, preferably on a frequency that isn't used for anything else and is registered with the FCC to say, hey, this manufacturer is using this thing to talk this language. I think that's the most reliable, most robust way to go. That said, I am increasingly interested in how open source is penetrating this market and how it's becoming the predominant standard. And so to the extent that things like Zigbee and Z-Wave are able to accomplish the same things that some of the more traditional automation systems can accomplish, I'm all on board. Do I have some skepticism about, you know, when you're going to do like a 20,000 square foot office and you say, okay, well, we have automation over here. We have automation over there. It's very easy to go place an automation repeater or an automation receiver at different places. And you treat it almost like an access point. You're measuring signal strength. You're calculating signal loss. You're looking at overage and channeling and all of those sorts of things. To me, it seems like when we get into the Zigbee Z-Wave thing, it's almost kind of like throw it up and hope that it works, right? Like 
these things will repeat and they'll create their own little mesh network and just wait for them to connect. And then ultimately it all comes back to a little USB stick sticking out of the, out of the device, which again is somewhat less desirable for me because sometimes where, in fact, often where the home automation controller is, is not the central point in the house. In fact, oftentimes it's somewhere down in some wiring closet or in some basement. And so it'd be nice to be able to separate the actual physical receiver. So I'm learning to be more flexible with my with my views here. I have purchased the Innovelli switch. I think that Z-Wave is likely the direction I'll go given the reports that I've gotten from other people, but I'm still holding out hope that someday somebody will come out with uh, with a native lighting protocol that is able to talk to all of the things directly and allows you to plan for some infrastructure as opposed to the self-healing self-meshing kind of a thing. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason why I kind of mentioned earlier that Wi-Fi is almost my preferred way to go because exactly what you were saying, there's a single point of failure whether you choose Zigbee or Z-Wave because you've got that single USB stick hanging off the back of some thing somewhere, whereas with Wi-Fi, at least you can spread your access points around. And in addition... You don't have to pair your Wi-Fi stuff to a specific controller. It just joins the network. And that means that if you decide to move Home Assistant or you want to move uh, work with the highly available Home Assistant um, project that's out there, you don't have to worry about moving your Z-Wave or Zigbee stick physically from one box to the other. So I'm, I'm on board with you. I'd love to see that in the future. John writes in and says, hi, Noah, in my living room, we have four lights, two over the couches and two over the TV. I thought I did enough research when looking for smart light bulbs, but the product I got is not reliable, especially with the toddler playing in the switch and the wife factor is lowering. What options do I have if I want to be able to turn the couch lights up on a schedule when we flip the switch, if not all four? Do I need four separate lights when we have guests over or doing something besides watching TV, which is especially in the winter? My requirements are I would like to keep the switch functional and not require an Internet connection for the switch to work. Also, doesn't reset the devices if a toddler tries to turn on the lights. So, Steve. I needed a little bit of help with you from you. You were explaining that his toddler is likely inadvertently activating the factory reset functionality of some of these switches. Yeah, a lot of the uh, smart devices have built into them the ability to tap it a bunch of times in order to hit the factory reset, whether it's a smart bulb, which is just cutting the power to the smart bulb a bunch of times, or whether it's actually some of these switches. So. Yeah. With that, how would you answer this question? So what I would do, and this is actually something that I don't think I was at this point in my house remodel when this question came in the first time, but I definitely have a have a thoughts on this now. We went to do our living room, and at first I was going to put all the cans in the living room on one switch. And over time, I started to think, well, but sometimes I want like the two lights that surround the fireplace to be a little bit lower than the main lights. In the, and actually, now that I think about it, I really want the three lights in front of the fireplace to be able to be separate from the two uh, that surround it, separate from the main cans that are in the living room. And so at this point, I think I want to say we have, so there's one, two, three, four, there's five gangs on one side and one, two, three, four, five, six on the other side. So what is that? That's 11 light different. I have 11 dimmers for one room. Uh, and they control various different loads. So if I woke up in your shoes, what I would do is I'd put every separate light on a separate dimmer. Then I would t bring those into Home Assistant and I would use automation and or triggers if I wanted multiple of those lighting zones to come on at one time. 
How's that for an answer, Steve? I think that I think that's a brilliant answer. Let's see what you did in the what you said in the past. Personally, not a big fan of smart stuff being in the load itself. I would prefer that the smart stuff being at the switch. So I've typically used uh, Lutron switches for everything that I've done. A brand called Inavelli. First of all, they're significantly cheaper, so they're about 42 bucks a piece. Second of all, you can program all of the buttons to do stuff. And the LED on the side, you can program to give responses back. Okay. So... I really both take all of those answers and combine them all into one. Use Inavelli, use Lutron, but set up the most important thing there is set up a separate dimmer for every one of the light zones that you'd potentially want to do differently. Steve, you have anything to add to that? Uh, no, I think that I think your approach of adding additional uh, light, like additional dimmers, is an interesting one. I suppose there was one thing that came to mind afterwards. I didn't think of this at the time, or maybe I wasn't aware of it, but there are uh, sensing switches out there now that, that don't actually control load. They simply exist to be able to determine when a light switch has been flicked so that it can send the appropriate signal to home automation. That will also prevent you from having the issue of a toddler flicking switches because those things are not going to reset the power or the configuration on the load devices themselves. They are just simply detecting an on-off switch, sending that signal off to the uh, home automation. And you could also just simply put in a block in the home automation saying like, if you get several of these at one time, don't send them on, just send the first one on. 100%. Our next question comes in from Sean. Sean wrote in earlier this year and had a couple different questions. One, I left my garage door open again, looking for a do-it-yourself garage door detector to show when it's open. The second, he wants to integrate his water leak detector under the sinks, toilets, dishwashers, near the washing machine. The third, he's looking at smart thermostats. And, or I'm sorry, I'm, I'm jumping around, aren't I? Yeah. Okay. So smart thermostat. It's a little later. Something, something else. Okay. But so Sean wants to integrate. So it's interesting. Having heard our discussion just about your lights on your staircase, obviously my mind jumps to one of the things he could do if he's worried about his garage door being open is trigger an automation to at least let him know that that garage door is open. And of course, if he wanted to get more, I guess, what you might say solutions based, then he might do what you do, which is track if the door is open or shut and then trigger an automation to close it if it's open or at least shut off the things that you wouldn't want on if the door was open. Yeah, I do that in my garage. That was the baby step was turn off the heater in the garage if you even think that the door is open. I'd rather it be colder than heating the outside. 100%. So let's go back in time, see how we answered that question previously. But one option you might consider is using something from Honeywell. So Honeywell primarily makes stuff for security systems. But the nice thing about tying them to Home Assistant is that basically all of their products function on an open closed circuit loop. If you have a Honeywell uh, security system, and it may be under a number of different names. Um, so it's entirely possible that you have uh, a Honeywell system. And if you do, you can just buy that add-on module and then tie it and tie that panel into Home Assistant. That's actually brilliant advice. So, so here's, so, okay. All right, all right, all right. 
So here's the thing. If you're looking for the solution to just knowing their garage door is open, then go with the the, the light thing. But the Honeywell magnet sensors, that is actually it's funny. I didn't think of that the second time. But yeah, in, in, in home automation in general, particularly when you're doing security installs, Honeywell makes all sorts of different sensors. So there's the magnet ones, which I think I, I was talking about, the little reed switches. But they also have... Uh, additional switches that can do things like you can put them, you can build them into the, like the door or into the base around the door. And when there's pressure on the switch, then it will determine if it's opened or closed. So it's a very, it's a very OEM style built in. You don't see any of the wires. You don't see any of the sensors kind of a thing way of tracking if doors are opened or shut. And it is an absolute prerequisite if you're going to add a security system in because you need to know what state the doors are in before you can arm or disarm the system. Ryan writes in and he asked about smart thermostats. He said, my question, do you guys have any specific knowledge or recommendations regarding smart thermostats? Understanding that I'm at ground zero with no automation currently, and I have two or generally any thoughts about the different purpose of abilities of home automation software beyond the automating of simple tasks? There's the obvious question. Where do I start? What software do I want on my VM? So Steve, have you found a home assistant native thermostat that you're really happy with? I would say that I have one that I'm okay with. It's uh, It works just fine. I don't have any major qualms with it. It is, I believe it's still running on uh, Zigbee. I'm just looking now because I wasn't, yeah. So I have a Centralite thermostat and I believe this is running on the Zigbee protocol, which I'm not a huge fan of as we know, but this has not the thermostat of all of my Zigbee devices has been the most reliable. So I'll put it that way. It's a, so it's a, it's a central light Pearl thermostat and uh, I can get the model number and put it in the show notes. It was a good buy. It's cheap and it, it does just your basic, like it controls things and it has some limitations such as if you want to set it lower than for example, uh, 69 degrees in your house you can't because the thermostat itself does not go lower than that so my solution is turn the power off to the thermostat (laughs) and just let the temperature settle on its own Um, but it was i think it was like 25 dollars. so it and it has not it's the only zigbee device that has not failed me so far so if i were looking at a home assistant first thermostat i would look at the venstar V-E-N-S-T-A-R. Now, there are certain models that are better with Home Assistant than others. So far as I understand it, there are there are some models that are no longer being made, but they're really the best ones to work with Home Assistant. So you have to do a little bit of research there. I haven't personally tried these on my own. I've just heard a number of recommendations of people that have had them and say they work really well. As I've talked about numerous times, I have the Honeywell Redlink system. I'm extraordinarily happy with the Honeywell Redlink system, and to a degree, it accomplishes some things with HVAC control that I think would be challenging to do with some of the cheaper thermostats. The thing I don't like about it is when I bought it, they had an open API, and so you literally just plug this little bridge thing in, give it an IP address, and now you can talk to all the thermostats via IP. Now I'm told that the newer versions require you to register for an account, so that's really not that's really not that great. Um, and Steve, you said that's the thermostat you're using. So the the Venstar was one I replaced, actually. I had it, and it just stopped connecting to my Wi-Fi. So I liked it because it was Wi-Fi-based, and it just worked over the API, but it just literally refused to connect to any Wi-Fi network. And so I ripped it out because it was just unreliable. I 
the tech support was not useful and yeah I the Venstar gets a thumbs down for me. See, that's where I'm afraid I'm headed with. Or that's where I'm afraid we're all headed with these Wi-Fi things. Uh, like, it's fine today. I question in ten years if they're still going to be working the way they are today, and we'll see. Maybe maybe they won't age well, and I'll be wrong. Uh, we'll go back in time. Let's see how that question was answered in the past. I use the Honeywell Redlink. It natively pairs to a controller that sits downstairs. So I put the controller and replaced equipment interface module that talks to the heating system. And then the Redlink thermostats, they just run off of 12 volts running through the regular thermostat wire. The Redlink system then pairs to a network controller. So I get access from Home Assistant to the Redlink system. But even if Home Assistant went down, the Redlink system would still wirelessly communicate with its own protocol. And if you didn't pick this up, where to start? Home Assistant. I would suggest Home Assistant is what you put on your VM. Okay. I would say that's pretty much a one-to-one, huh? Yeah, I was going to say, if we had Chris's bell, I'd be dinging it for you. <laughs> All right. Our next email comes in from Eddie. Eddie writes in and says, I'm currently completely replacing my front door, and I'm interested in your recommendations for smart door locks and smart doorbells. I'm pretty sure that I remembered you had some sort of electromagnetic lock and an RFID keypad that you mentioned in a previous show, but I'd like to hear more about your thoughts on that as well, So I don't like or recommend smart locks or smart doorbells. Steve, I have no idea what I said about this when it first came in, but I have opinions now, let me tell you. Axis A1001, that is my one of my absolute all-favorite all-time favorite devices. In fact, I like the A1001 so much that we were installing them for clients. And I I logged into it the first few times. I was like, this is a brilliant device. I want one of these in my home. And so I immediately ripped out my carry system that I had that was previously doing my access control, replaced it with an A1001. I've never been happier. Since that time, I've had a person that listens to the show reach out to me and say, hey, I know you've talked positively about the Access A1001. I'm looking at some access control needs for my work, and we were thinking about going with the newer version. I don't recall the newer model off the top of my head, but he goes, would you recommend it? I said, absolutely. I understand that they've tweaked a couple of things and improved a couple of things over the A1001, so please buy that box. Tell me what you think. So he gets it, and he sends me a message after it comes in. He's like, I can't figure out how to log into it. I'm like, what do you mean? It's just a web interface. You put the IP address in, you type in, you wrote in the, the password, and you're Bob's your uncle. You're good to go. He goes, no, there's no web interface. I'm like, come on. There's a course there's a web interface. It turns out in the newest version of these stupid access controllers, they've gone to some stupid controller-based thing. So you have to have like this little PC that has to run, as well as the little independent access controllers, which that's terrible. So I called our suppliers, and I was like, hey, what's up? Apparently, they have access A1001s for days, so they're all over the place. You can get them from B&H and all of the other suppliers, as well as when the newer version came out, the old ones, the A1001s, hit eBay like crazy. And so you can buy them now, two, 300 bucks, you can get them off of eBay. What I like about them, Linux-based controller, it looks like a little white smoke detector. So you can mount it above your door, or if you're crazy like me and you run wires throughout your house and you can put it down into your network operations center. Either way, it's a local device that runs on HTML. So 25 years from now, as long as your browser's still working, you'll still be able to log into your access controller system. Works with HID readers, which means you can take advantage of their prox readers, of their RFID readers, of their NFC readers, of their pin pad. The guy mentions the the little card readers. All of those will work. And the readers that I purchased, which is the R, R10 uh, Mini, I think, it supports reading the 
how the name is going to escape me, but it's the MyFair 2. It reads the MyFair 2 standard, which is the same RFID standard that's used by, you know, like uh, mass transit and those sorts of things, but it's also used in the hospitality industry. So every time I stay at a hotel, I get a free key for my house and I just reprogram it and add it to the controller. The A1001 by Axis. It is the bee's flipping knees. Now, most recently, I've paired that with my uh, doorbell, which is an Axis uh, doorbell. And I've had absolutely tremendous luck with it. It's it's fantastic. It works extraordinarily well and is fairly inexpensive, all self-hosted, completely local, on the Internet, all the things. So you, I don't have to worry about somebody, uh, you know, that stuff going out over the Internet, anything like that. And that is the Axis 8105A8105 video doorbell. Steve, anything to add to that before we head back and see how we answer that question back in the past? Just that I have gone looking for that since your original recommendation and uh, have not been able to find any for sale. Okay. Well, when when they come up, I'm interested to hear what you think of it because I'm absolutely floored by it. Let's go back in time and see how that question got answered before. Now, here's what I did at my house. It's the Axis A1001. Um, the Axis A1001 is a controller. And so it's a standalone box that you mount and either feed with PoE or feed at 12 volt. The advantage of doing it this way is so threefold. One, you can choose your locking mechanism independent from the Axis control portion of it. Completely web-based, no Windows software required which brings me to my next suggestion, the smart doorbell. So if you're looking for a smart doorbell, I don't like any of the ones that are are basically Chinese branded. Axis makes a flush mount door camera. Okay, so that's I'd say that's a two for two, wouldn't you say? Yep, bang on. <laughs> Jeremy writes in and says, is it feasible to replace my typical home security vendor system with Home Assistant? If so, could you recommend any hardware software combinations to replace the alarm systems? I got to be honest with you, Steve. I don't remember anything about this question. And does Home Assistant have alarm or security functionality? Yes. Have I used it? No. I wonder, uh, what did you answer the first time? So typical home security system, when I hear that, I think of an alarm system. Keypad on the wall, you type a thing, it arms, you walk out the door. What I recommend uh, to all of our clients at AltaSpeed is a service called Alarm Relay. So that's what I hear when I hear you say that the uh, a typical home security system. Another thing you might check out, it's a company called Connected. They do support things like it being completely private and it being completely local on your network. So the one thing I think was missing from that question was the actual security system itself, which is Honeywell. That's typically what we used. Um, you can purchase, you can go into Amazon, and they've got either the traditional, like, panel-based Honeywell security system, or they've got the new version, which is essentially kind of an all-in-one thing. It's got the control panel, the speakers, the alarm, all that built into one unit. Either of them are great. Either of them are easy to install. None of them require any sort of proprietary software. Hey, I hope you appreciate this episode. If you like it, we record it every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Show notes are available at podcast.snowashow.com.